Thank you, ladies. God bless you guys. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We've got a full house. Amen. Good to see everyone here. And I know we still have a few families who are traveling and out and about, uh, but they will be back with us soon. Amen. Amen. Uh, Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. As we continue in this wonderful gospel, (coughs) excuse me, Um, if you are paying attention to my voice, you can sense that uh, my voice is not 100%, um, and I thank those who on Wednesday night kind of filled in for me. Nathan uh, took over, right? It was a great time and good prayer time, I understand, and and singing and stuff. And, And so this morning, I will do my very best to get through this time of presenting God's word without too much interruption of coughing. Um, and I will uh, pray that this, this, I pr- this is one of the things I really wrestled with this morning was, can I present the gospel without embarrassing it? Um, and so thank you for your grace and your patience this morning. But we are here to hear God speak to us in his word. Amen. As we're looking at Matthew 17, Matthew's account of Jesus's journey to Jerusalem and on to the crucifixion continues. From this point forward in the gospel, Jesus is looking to Jerusalem. I mean, we, we now follow here in this text, Jesus and his apostles, his 12, they're on their journey back to Galilee from Caesarea Philippi. Most likely they returned to Peter's home in Capernaum, where Jesus often rested and, uh, and then he would launch out again in ministry. So we, they're coming back to Capernaum in this text and most likely gathering at Peter's home as he often did there. But, G, but, but Jesus's usual methods here are at play. I mean, he uses common events to teach his disciples and to teach us great lessons about the kingdom of heaven. And this text today is no different. The lesson of this passage concerns one's citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And this lesson comes through an expression of divine ability. And that's something I want us to focus on, this idea of divine ability that Jesus shows us here to provide for a tax debt. I mean, so if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. And we'll be reading Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? (coughs) Excuse me. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he said to them, from others. And Jesus answered or said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Mm. Let's pray. Father God, we pause at the reading of this story, this interaction between Jesus and Peter and tax collectors and 
the tax that was due the temple. And Lord, many of us may look at this text in ways of looking for answers to ourselves and our own struggles. And how do we deal as Christians with taxes and corruption? And that is not necessarily what you're trying to teach us here, I think, Lord. I think there's something deeper here you're trying to show us. And Lord, I thank you that you're showing us that Jesus has divine ability to take care of what needs to be done. And so, God, I pray this morning you would open our minds to this truth, that you would open our minds to see that Jesus is who he is. He is divine, yet also human. He is divine. He is incarnate deity here, interacting with us here and showing us many things in this world that we cannot see. And so, God, I pray that you would show, open our hearts and our minds to see the truth of the gospel here, the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, here, and help us, Father, to obey and to, and to follow. So, Lord, use this time for your glory. Speak to us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Have a seat. Um, as we're looking here at beginning in verse 22, Jesus' final months before arriving in Jerusalem, they were spent less with the multitudes of crowds and more intimately with his 12 apostles. That's what we're going to begin to see more and more here as we go forward in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's going to share more intimate times with our Lord between him and his 12. Because if you remember, as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's preparing his apostles to take over after he departs. And these are his final months with his 12 to show them many things, to teach them many things. And this encounter, I think, with the tax collectors is another grand event intended to teach the apostles something important. I mean, Jesus's purpose was to prepare them. And he valued these final months with his 12. Excuse me, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of the men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So this is just another insert into the Gospels that Jesus is sharing with his disciples what is coming. He interjects here for the third time, Jesus' preparation, his words to his apostles concerning this imminent suffering and death and his victorious resurrection. So this is a little bit of an interjection, but it flows directly into the Capernaum scene. The message of verses 22 and 23, they they repeat what Jesus had said before in Matthew 17, 2 and 16, 21. This is the third time we see in the Gospels now, in this Gospel, that Jesus is telling his disciples what's coming. And notice that every time he says this, the reaction of his 12 follows the same comment, and they were greatly distressed. Twelve apostles, twelve men, intimately involved with their Lord, and they are greatly distressed when he tells them, I must suffer at the hands of enemies, and they will kill me, and then I will raise from the dead. That's disturbing. Them. You're noticing that in verse 22 and 23. I mean, have any of us been prepared by a dying loved one that they were going to heaven with words of comfort? This dying person who is on their way to heaven gives you words of comfort 
It's okay, they might say, but, but we're certainly not okay. And these 12 are hearing from their Lord and they're distressed. I mean, this loved one who will be with them, Jesus here now soon to leave them. And these men are facing grief over the prospect. I mean, after Jesus gives these 12 this third reminder of his looming suffering and death and his resurrection, he gives Peter and the others a lesson on the Christian obligation to human government as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the obligation of the citizens of the kingdom to earthly government is important. I mean, it's important despite the hostility expressed toward Jesus and his church. I mean, in spite of what hostile governing authorities say or do toward Jesus, his disciples, his church, we have an obligation to that government. That's part of what we see here. Look here at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? As was the custom of the day, when anyone landed on the shores of Capernaum, there was always an official waiting to collect a tax from you. It's kind of like coming into a customs house. Sometimes a Roman tax collector wanted funds for Caesar. In this case, a tax collector wanted funds for the temple. The two drachma tax was the annual tax collected for the upkeep of the Jerusalem temple. And this was a continuous uh, 1,500-year tradition that began back in the time of Moses. Exodus chapter 30, if you want to take notes, initiates what was called a census tax. And there would be an annual tax, an annual census, and each person over the age of 20 was to give half a shekel for support of the tabernacle. That's where this tax comes from here in verse 24, the two drachma tax. In this case, the tax collectors come to Peter. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Remember that Capernaum was Peter's hometown. The locals knew him and certainly expected Peter to pay his debt. But their question to Peter, I think, was directed about Jesus as the master teacher who himself had a great reputation even in Capernaum. Remember? The detail of these tax collectors asking for this two drachma tax helps us place this event on a timeline in the months leading to his crucifixion. The tax was usually collected about a month or so before the Jewish Passover. So that must be the timeline that we're looking at here. But why do... Are they looking for a drachma tax when you were supposed to pay a shekel or half a shekel? Well, a drachma was a Roman currency of the time. And two drachma was equal to a half a shekel. Moses' currency, right? The the shekel was was mosaic, but the drachma was Roman. The phrasing of the question here seems to be a direct challenge to Jesus, though. Look here again. Does your teacher not pay the tax? So that's a rhetorical method here. When you ask a question like this, you you automatically know what the answer you want to be. It's almost a challenge. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Implying that he doesn't pay tax. Has anybody ever been challenged like that with a question? 
and then suddenly you find yourself in a defensive answer? See, there's a, there's a play of power going on here. Perhaps these tax collectors were instructed by the temple leaders in Jerusalem to challenge Jesus on this issue. Remember, we're leading up to the arrival in Jerusalem and his crucifixion. So the leaders in Jerusalem, the enemies of God, were actually preparing even here. Since Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, they thought maybe he might consider himself exempt from the tax. And if he did, they would have another charge against him. You see what's happening here? Does your teacher not pay the tax, Peter? Challenge. But notice Peter's answer in verse 25. He said yes. Notice how simple and direct that was? Does your teacher not pay the tax, Peter? Yes, he pays the tax. Very simple, very direct. Jesus must have always paid his taxes. That's the implication we get here. Peter simply reflects on Jesus' reputation. He doesn't eloquent, he doesn't ponder on it anymore. Yes, he pays the tax. Matthew gives us no more in the dialogue. A simple and straight answer on whether Jesus paid the temple tax. Yes. No doubt, he pays his taxes. But look here at the end of verse 25. Now Jesus initiates this teaching moment with Peter. Now, halfway through verse 25, the scene shifts from the tax collectors on the shore now to a private area with Jesus and his disciples. Now Jesus asks Peter a probing question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or their others? What's happening here? The question is a probing question. Jesus is using this as a teaching moment for Peter. He's using this moment as a teaching moment. And I think that's what we need to focus on on this text. It's less to do with whether Christians should pay taxes or not, and more to do with how Jesus is probing his disciples and causing them to see deeper here about the implications of the kingdom of heaven. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Or some translations, from sons or from strangers? When this is a rhetorical question again, the question is in light of an aristocratic governing system, a monarchy. Monarchs are centralized power where one individual passes the royal legacy to their heirs. We're not used to that in our governing system, even though we do have political dynasties. We have families of political dynasties, but it's not the same as a monarchy. I mean, the kings of the earth here that's implied here. If you were, if you were a king over a kingdom, the kings of the earth taxed for the support of their families and the support of their kingdoms and the support of their empires. But think about Jesus's approach here. He asked this question of Simon Peter intended to elicit a certain response. Think about the question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? There's an obvious answer here. The obvious answer is that no monarch in his or her right mind would levy taxes on their dependents or their heirs, would they? I mean, it's illogical to collect money from those who take money from you for their livelihood and for their legacy. Why would a king tax their children who benefit from the taxes? You're seeing the circular logic there. 
I mean, so clearly the answer is that a king would tax others or strangers outside of the royal family. So if Jesus was exempt here from any tax, certainly he would not pay a tax to maintain his own father's temple in Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus was the one the temple was built to honor and whose sacrifices and offering were made. He's the son of the king. He's the son of the father. So if anyone were to be exempt of a tax... Jesus would be exempt of this temple tax. Correct? Doesn't Jesus declare himself to be greater than the temple? We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. Here's what Jesus says. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than the temple. He's the one that the temple honors. So would he be required to pay a tax in support of his own temple? Clearly not. But he had every right to refuse the tax. I mean, just as he had the right to avoid suffering and persecution. I mean, Jesus willingly, he, he does, he did not exploit his status as the son of God. He did not exploit his status as the honored son of the kingdom of heaven. We see this over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. If you want to flip over there, the Apostle Paul helps us really see here how Jesus, even though he had every right in his royal status, he in his humility, he chooses not to exploit this status. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The encounter with tax collectors in Matthew 17 I mean, it's a practical example of Jesus' willing humility and his willing servanthood. Because Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 tells us, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Here's the issue here. Jesus, even though he does humble himself, he never empties himself of his divine Rights. He never empties himself of his divine authority. We're going to get into that here in just a second because this is an area where some people can be mistaken on the status of who Jesus is. When we look back in Matthew 17, verse 26, Jesus models the lesson to Simon Peter that while Jesus, the Son of God, is focused on the interest of sinful men, so too should Peter learn to focus on the interests of the human government. I mean, albeit that this two drachma tax was for God's temple, here's what Jesus says here in verse 26. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Indicating that the son of the king is free from the tax. But then he continues, however, not to give offense to them. Go and pay the tax. I mean, ironically, Jesus calls the operation of the temple in Jerusalem a den of thieves, remember? 
in Matthew 12, 13, that's what he calls them, a reference to Jeremiah's condemnation of the temple. Jeremiah said the same thing in Jeremiah 7. Jesus says this in Matthew 21. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. How many of us would be struggling to pay a temple tax to a den of thieves? You hear Jesus, even though he sees the truth, we must pay the tax. I mean, Jesus will eventually cleanse this temple of his corruption, but for now, Jesus has a greater purpose and timing. However, not to give offense to them, Peter, go and fish and we'll pay the tax. And what transpires in verse 27 shows us a greater divine ability that serves to further reveal Jesus's deity and the Father's providence. The words and actions in Matthew 17, 27. And this is where I really want us to focus in this passage. Verse 27 is the main point here. It has less to do with Jesus, whether he should or should not pay a temple tax, and more to do with how he paid the tax. I don't want us to miss this point. Look here in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. See, many of us, when we look at this text, we want to look at this text of whether or not we are justified as Christians to pay taxes to a corrupt United States government. I see a lot of you snickering. Because perhaps you've looked at this passage, well, maybe we don't have to pay taxes to a corrupt government because we're sons of the kingdom. And Jesus says that the son is free. That's not the point of this text. Notice what Jesus does here in verse 27. Now that Jesus establishes his divine privilege as the son of the king, his actions in verse 27 show his divine nature as the incarnate one. If Jesus were not the incarnate deity that he claimed to be, his claim of divine sonship would lack credibility. Remember, because that was his, that was his answer, his argument for why he, the son of the king, is free from the tax. He has to now show, I am who I am. If Jesus were not the son, if his sonship of, of God was not, if his sonship did not have credibility, then his argument would have no credibility. But Jesus showed the purest humility here in verse 27. God the Father would not require his son to pay taxes to support his own temple, but Jesus the Son will pay it. I want that just to sink in. He's paying the tax to his own temple. That he is not required to pay. Does that sound like a connection to a gospel account? Our sins are paid for by one who did not have to pay for our sins. I mean, Jesus, the son, will pay it. And I don't think in verse 27 he's paying this tax as a snarky reply to the tax collectors, but more so to teach Peter and his apostles that he, Jesus Christ, possesses divine ability to produce whatever is necessary at any given moment. I mean, how can we say that the man Jesus Christ is fully God if he lacks some of the qualities of a deity? 
How can we say that he perfectly revealed the Father if some of the Father's own authorities and powers were not in him? There's this false theory, it's called the kenosis theory, that ties back to Philippians 2 that we just read. This false theory argues that when God took on human flesh, he temporarily somehow set aside his deity. Anybody ever heard that teaching? I mean, the false idea is that the divine and the sinful flesh of men cannot be in the same place at the same time. It argues that true manhood on earth is incompatible with the unreduced deity of God. This kenosis theory even goes further to say that Jesus somehow lost some of his divine powers for all of eternity because he had to reduce or temporarily abandon his divine glory in order to be incarnate. Some in this room may have heard that teaching before, that Jesus could not be who he was because the divine cannot involve itself with the sinful human flesh. The false idea of this comes from the bad hermeneutics surrounding Philippians 2. If you want to flip back there, <coughs> that's why we're going to be staying there for a minute. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning of verse 5 and 6. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's where the error comes into this text. The... the This false interpretation of verse 6 and 7 comes from the idea of Jesus not grasping equality with God. People take that out of context and think that Jesus was not equal with God. And that he emptied himself of all divine attributes. The proper translation here would be that he chose not to exploit or take advantage of his divine Reality. That's the idea here. And then made himself nothing in verse seven, but made himself nothing or some translations or emptied himself or deprived himself. And this is where the kenosis idea comes in that somehow he emptied himself of his divine, of his divinity. That's the problem. The issue is the words Here, Jesus never emptied himself of his divine nature. He merely chose not to take advantage of or to exploit this nature for himself. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. And what we see in Matthew 17 is that Jesus is displaying his divine ability to do whatever needed to be done in the physical present. So therefore, he did not fully set aside, he never set aside one ounce of his divine authority. He just did not exploit or take advantage of it. So when Jesus uses his divine ability here in Matthew 17 to pay the four drachmas one shekel through the mouth of a fish, I mean, we cannot miss the big point of the passage. I mean, what's the divine ability I mean, clearly in the case of fishing for tax money, Jesus shows that he has the ability to do whatever is necessary in the material. He does. I mean, this shows us that divine nature is clearly compatible with Jesus's human nature. In Jesus, divine nature and human nature 
are indeed compatible. That doesn't mean that you and I have divine nature. (laughs) But in Jesus, his divine nature and his human nature are indeed compatible. Therefore, the idea that Jesus was forced to somehow distance himself from his divinity is a false idea. And we see that here in Matthew 17. I mean, Scripture does show us (coughs) sometimes that Jesus' knowledge of both things human and divine maybe was limited from time to time, whether that is by his choice or, or whatever circumstances, because, I mean, occasionally he will ask for information. Who touched my clothes? How many loaves do you have? I mean, maybe, I mean, Jesus clearly understood these things, but he does ask the question as if he does not know. Who touched my clothes? Who, how many loaves do you have? And Jesus will declare that he shares the ignorance of the angels as to the day appointed for his return. But at other times, he displays a supernatural knowledge. He knows the shady history of the Samaritan woman at the well. He knew everything about her. He, he, he knows without being told that Lazarus is dead. So there Jesus knows all things, yet other times he says he does not. Doesn't mean that he is weakened at all. It's just meaning that the human nature and the divine nature are working together in Christ Jesus himself. So here in Matthew 17, 27, here's the point. Jesus knows and causes something to happen that Peter will catch a fish and find a coin in its mouth to pay the two drachma tax for them both. Notice what he does here. Look here, verse 27 again. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Now, the the tax was a two drachma tax, but he finds a shekel, which was enough to pay for two people, as was the custom. Jesus knows this is happening. I mean, Jesus possessed divine ability, and this ability is willingly restrained sometimes, but this is the idea of kenosis, not the idea that he abandoned his divine ability or his divine nature. It's the nature of the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, to submit to the authority and the good pleasure of the Father. The provision of the coin here in Matthew 17, 27, shows that Jesus was the heir to the king and loved his Father so much waited on him to provide and cared not that he had an income stream and savings to pay the temple tax. There's no indicator here that Jesus said, go to the bank and get the money we save for the tax and go pay the bill. Go fish and you're going to find a coin in the mouth of the first fish you catch. Amazing. Who else has that ability? I don't. Sometimes when I go fishing, I catch nothing. Jesus says, Peter, go fish. Just cast a hook out. Don't even bait it. Catch a first fish, and there you're going to find our tax money. Okay. Blows my mind. I mean, and unless we become sidetracked in this passage to think that the lesson here is that all Christians should pay their taxes. But let me say, I truly believe that we conduct ourselves as good citizens and we pay our taxes. We don't come to church 
and plot political uh, revolution and overthrows because we don't like what the government's doing to us as Christians. That's not what we do. We pay our taxes, even to a corrupt government if necessary. Jesus did. I mean, that's that's a side point. The point of the passage, I think, is more the divine ability of Jesus, the son, to pay the temple tax from the mouth of a fish. I mean, did you notice this? Jesus and Peter pay their temple tax from what is found in the mouth of a fish. That's the point. And some of us say, well, that's a great child story. That's not just a good children's story. It happened. I mean, the Son of God provided the tax, a shekel, a coin worth four drachma, paid the tax for both Peter and Jesus. Peter takes this lesson further into his ministry. Peter will take this and he will apply it to his ministry for the rest of his life. And we see that when you read First and Second Peter, the two epistles of, of Peter, the apostle, that God's people submit themselves to governing authorities no matter where they are. They pay their taxes and they live as honored citizens even in destruction, even in dis- when you're cast in exile, as Peter was writing in First and Second Peter, he's writing to the church in exile. Wherever you are, live as honored citizens. Because I witnessed one day my Lord provide a tax to a corrupt temple system. And he did so in a miraculous way. But let's not forget that Jesus paid this tax, I want to say it one more time, by locating a coin in the mouth of a fish. Y'all going to get tired of me saying that. I want to drive that home. A divine ability that showcases even more clearly his status as the Son of God. I want to pay my own tax to my own temple, to my own system, by showing you, Peter, how to go get a coin. I want to show you it's taken care of. Jesus paid this temple tax despite the obvious corruption of the temple authorities. Knowing that the tax money was often exploited and wasted, Jesus still paid his tax. I mean, you see Jesus' blood. Here's the other thing we need to pull from this text, and we'll close with this. You see, Jesus' blood fulfills all Old Testament sacrifices that the temple tax would have supported. I mean, the true ransom for our sinful state is Jesus himself, isn't it? The temple in Jerusalem would no longer play a central role in the lives of the believers. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple, and his believers are the new priesthood. And Peter expresses this lesson again in his epistles, 1 Peter chapter 2. I mean, we're citizens of the kingdom, and this is not, that is not of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Yet Jesus, in his divine ability, pays taxes to a corrupt earthly system. I mean, we are citizens of the kingdom. I mean, likewise, the the apostles here, remember, they were greatly distressed over Jesus' reminders to them of where he would go, what would happen to him. I mean, his actions in providing this temple tax, I think, to satisfy those who would kill him. He's paying a temple tax to those he knows will kill him. I mean, this further shows Jesus' deep love for us and his grace for all sinners. 
You see the depth here of what Jesus is doing. In the deep distress that these apostles had, Jesus shows his divine ability to remind them of who he is. So please remember one item from this passage. What do you think I want you to remember? I've said it enough. Tanner, what do I want you to remember? Came from where? Jesus paid his taxes through a fish. He has divine ability to do anything necessary for his kingdom and for our salvation. Because for Jesus, it was not so much whether or not the tax was worthy to be paid. It was that I have sinners that I love so much, I want to save them and redeem them from them, from themselves and from their sin. I'm here to restore them to glory in front of the Father. That's the point. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And so, Father, we do praise you this morning that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to do nothing more than to redeem us when we did not deserve it. He did so much for us that he did not have to do, but he did it. And it is because of that, this Father, this morning we come, as we're closing out our time of worship, we come to your table and we remember exactly what Jesus did for us. He sacrificed all for those who did not deserve sacrifice. He sacrificed himself in order to appease your wrath against us. He sacrificed himself, Father, so that we could be redeemed and so that we could come into your presence once more. So, Father, he, Jesus had to suffer much and to die horribly and to resurrect from the dead. He had divine ability to do all this. And for that, we stand in awe. And it's because of that we stand this morning and we remember, as Christ calls us to remember, his broken body and his spilt blood. So, Father, as we transition into this worship now at the table, I pray, Lord, that you would honor us with your presence, that you would purge our minds of any distractions, and that we would focus and remember on the price paid for our sin. Use this time, Lord, now we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.